If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Galatians chapter number 5. Galatians chapter number 5, and we're going to continue our series on the Holy Spirit. We've been uh, learning about uh, the Holy Spirit the last few weeks and, uh, and what the Holy Spirit does for our lives, and uh, not just what He does for our lives, but who the person of the Holy Spirit is and how it is that uh, He works in our lives. And uh, hopefully it's been a, a blessing. I hope it's been a help to you. Uh, let me just say, by the way, as you're turning to Galatians chapter number 5, if you've not received the notes for the message this morning, if you're missing those, you can just raise your hand and the ushers will bring one to you. Uh, usually it's inside the bulletin, but if it wasn't in there uh, for whatever reason, just uh, ask the usher and he'll, he'll bring you uh, the notes and that way you can follow along as we study God's Word uh, together. And that's what we do when we, uh, when we get to the time of preaching. It's a time in which we grow together, a time in which the, the Spirit of God speaks to us through the Word of God, and I hope it's been uh, that for you every time that you've been here on Sunday. So Galatians chapter number 5, and we're going to read just two verses, verse 22 and verse 23, as we look at really the last three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. We've been talking about really what the Holy Spirit does in the life of every person, whether they're saved or not saved. And then we, we learned about how the Holy Spirit can guide us and how He directs our lives, how He leads us and give us, gives us liberty. But we also talked about the last two weeks, what that produces in our life. The fruit of the Spirit is how, Gal uh, how Paul wrote it in Galatians. And so uh, we've been learning about what that fruit of the Spirit looks like and how it manifests itself in our life as we're guided and filled with the Holy Spirit. So Galatians 22 and 23 of chapter 5, 22 and 23 uh, says like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. We want to look at faith, meekness and temperance this morning and see what that means, how that manifests itself in our life as the Spirit works in our hearts and in our lives. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray and ask God to help us as we study His Word. Father, thank You so much for once again allowing us to be here. Thank You for this time of preaching. Father, it is in this time that we experience spiritual growth. It's during this time that we get to draw closer to you by hearing your word and receiving your word. I pray that this morning as I give the message that you've laid on my heart, that I would be able to communicate it uh, clearly and effectively, Father, that uh, by your spirit I would be able to share with what I have been learning and studying in your word this week. I pray that, Father, you would also speak to our hearts. May we all be receptive uh, to your word. May we be doers of your word and not hearers only. So I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds this morning, that we would be ready to receive uh, that truth that you have for us in this passage. Father, make it something that would apply to our lives today. And Father, may it be uh, for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Holy Spirit's work affects every area of a person. It affects our spirit, our body, and our soul. The Bible says there in Thessalonians that we are spirit, body, and soul. We have three parts 
in us that make us up of who we are. And the Holy Spirit works affect all of those areas, our spirit, body, and soul. He works on our spirit by producing in us love, joy, and peace. And we talked about that as the internal fruit that the fruit of the Spirit bears in our life. But he also works through our bodies, through long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. And we talked a little bit about what that was last week and how uh, in the external fruit, what the fruit of the Spirit will, will do in our lives and that others can see. And, and we learned about how last week long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness has an other's focus. It's how we treat others. It's how we love others. It's how we deal with others. And, and so we said... Part of the fruit of the Spirit is that external fruit that it helps us to have in our life. And now this morning, we want to finish those last three aspects where the Holy Spirit begins to work on our soul. You see, we call this the personal fruit. This is our personality. It's His work on our being itself. It's, it's Him changing who we are. Because you see, every person in here is, is different. Uh, though we all might be human beings, though some here may be ladies and others may be men, uh, we are all different. We're all made unique. We're all uh, with a different kind of personalities, different likes and dislikes. We've, we've got different kinds of food that we like, and, and uh, we've got all kinds of different tastes. And, and it all points back to the fact that we have different personalities. We are different in who we are at our our core, and we are just different in our soul. And so uh, as we study these last three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to see how that applies really to our soul, how it applies to our personality, because it's important to see that we need to be changed, not just in what we do and not just in our motives, but we need to change in our whole being. We need to be changed in our personality. You know, in the 1950s, there was a psychologist by the name of Stanton Samenow and a psychiatrist named Samuel Yockelson, and they were sharing this conventional wisdom that crime is caused by environment. Uh, the environment around you uh, really uh, shows or proves that, that crime is, uh, is what causes crime. In other words, if you were born in a poor home, then uh, you just naturally want to steal because you were born poor and with less things than others. And so these two men, the psychologists and psychiatrists, got together and they, they began to try to prove their point. So they had a, a clinical testing of 250 inmates and they did this for thousands of hours over these 250 inmates, this clinical testing there in Washington, D.C. To their astonishment, they discovered that the cause of crime cannot be traced to environment, poverty, or oppression. Instead, they said, crime is the result of individuals making, as they put it, wrong moral choices. In fact, in their work in 1977, they wrote a book called The Criminal Personality. And they concluded that the answer to a crime is a conversion of the wrongdoer to a more responsible lifestyle. All these hours, and they said, you know what really is the problem isn't the circumstances and environment around a person The problem is the person himself. They need to change that person from being a wrongdoer to someone responsible. In 1987, their Harvard professors, James Wilson and Richard Hernstein, came to very much similar conclusions. In fact, they wrote a book called Crime and Human Nature. 
And they determined that the cause of crime is a lack of proper moral training among young people during the morally formative years, particularly ages 1 to 6. In other words, even from the youngest of us among us, there is a problem with the nature that that person has. There's a problem in our personality. And part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to change that personality, is to change us from the very core of our being. So this morning, I want to just conclude this study that we've had on the fruit of the Spirit with these last three facets, if you will, of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. I want you to notice there in your notes, first of all, that we said this is personal fruit personal fruit. As we walk in the Spirit, there are personal character traits that begin to develop that others will see in us as a result of the Holy Spirit's work, okay? Uh, The first of these traits here, Paul put, is faith. This is a personal trait that we have, and he says that it should produce faith. Now, let me just say that throughout the book of Galatians, the word faith is used in different ways. For instance, in chapter 1 of the book, in verse 23, the word there used, faith, is really in the context of the gospel, in the Christian context of this is what the gospel says. This is our faith. Then in chapter 3, in verse number 14, he, Paul uses the word faith again, but it refers to that saving faith, the salvation, the faith that we put in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross, the forgiving faith that we have in Jesus Christ. But when you get to chapter 5 and verse 23, where we're at here at verse 22, it refers to our faithfulness in fulfilling Christian duties. It's not really the faith of salvation, but rather the faith of actually faithfully serving God, following after God. Now, this work of the Holy Spirit is what enabled us to be reliable and dependable on living out our faith. All right. To live out the salvation, the Christian life, we need to have faithfulness. And you cannot have faithfulness without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, I want you to notice that 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God wants you and I to be faithful. Now, how can we be faithful? Only through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you find yourself faithful to church this morning, let me say, it's not because you're that great of a person. It's because the work of the Holy Spirit is great that is in you. If you find yourself faithful to your wife or to your husband, it's not because she got lucky and won the lottery marrying you. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in you so that you might remain faithful. You say, this of faith is the Holy Spirit working in us. Now, I want you to notice this morning that for the Holy Spirit to do this, we must understand that there's a motivation for faithfulness. What is the motivation for faithfulness? Why we do something is as important as what we do. Did you know that? Why you do something is just as important as what you do. I think it's great that there are organizations in our nation that, that are trying to, to help people that uh, are going through financial difficulties and, and people that are, are going through uh, relationship difficulties. But you know, there are many organizations that are doing that to turn a profit. It's not always so much that they love people, but maybe they love the money that brings in those people. And sometimes 
you can do that not just in organization-wide, but as individuals. Sometimes we can have the motivation of being faithful because of something we think we're going to get for this. And the motivation really isn't love for something else or someone else, but it's really all about us. That's why Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He was writing to some Christians that were struggling with this. And they were, they were doubting what Paul was doing for them. And they thought, oh, Paul's just doing this so he can exalt himself, so he can say, look at the church I have and look what I've done for God. And Paul writes to them, and notice what he says. I think it's in your notes. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 13 says, For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us. He said, it's the love of Christ that makes me do what I'm doing for you. Paul was revealing to those Christians in Corinth, hey, this is why, this is my motivation for it. This is my motivation to be faithful. It's not about you, it's about him. You know, many times as Christians, we lack faithfulness just because our motivations become very selfish. It's what is the church going to do for me? What is that teacher going to do for me? What's that pastor going to do for me? And suddenly our faithfulness, even in just coming to God's house, becomes something selfish. Sometimes we get so selfish that we begin to, to think that because of what I'm doing, suddenly God owes me something. We, we, we hit some difficult times in life and, and we say, well, I've been faithful to the church. Why has this happened to me? Why am I losing my job? Why, why am I experiencing this illness? Why is my family having to go through this? And if we're not careful, we, we get this mindset that suddenly, because I've been faithful, God owes me. You see, it's a wrong motivation to be faithful. You know, God does not owe us anything. We are not doing God a favor by being here this morning. I hope you're here this morning because you love God. That ought to be your only motivation for being here this morning. It ought to be because I want to hear what God's word says. It's because I want to draw closer to God. Our motivation for faithfulness must be Christ and Christ alone. And let me just say that the work of the Holy Spirit creates that in you. It's not by positive thinking. It's not by telling myself, if I just, okay, I love God, I love God, I love God, I love God. No. Just like you don't do that when you're in a relationship. I've seen teenagers. We have quite a few of them in our church. And I've seen a lot of them go on dates and start dating. And I've never heard one of them have to say, man, I like her, I like her, right? Yeah, yeah, I like her, I like her. They don't have to convince themselves of it. They just know it. <laughs> it's amazing how people describe that first love, like lightning that strikes you or Cupid with the arrow. There's just something that just hits you and you know it. Do you know when the Spirit of God begins to work in your life, that becomes your motivation for faithfulness, just the love of Christ? Suddenly, being faithful isn't anything about me. It's really all about Him. Can I say, faithfulness is not a matter of willpower this morning. Sometimes we lack in faithfulness and we think, well, I just, I just got to be stronger at it. I just got to maybe write it down in a calendar. I got I to gotta do something to, to make my determination that much more stronger. But you know, faithfulness isn't really a matter of your strength. 
It's not a matter of you convincing yourself. It's not a matter of your willpower. It's really a matter of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The more you allow the Spirit of God to control your life, the more you'll find that you'll be faithful. The more you'll find the motivation that you can have. You see, faithfulness is a fruit that only the Spirit of God can bring into the life of a person. So this morning, I ask you, what is your motivation? Is it a motivation that is being controlled by the Spirit of God, or is it a motivation that you're trying to sort of pump yourself up for? What is your motivation this morning? We see that the fruit of the Spirit has with it the motivation of faithfulness, but it also has the modeling of faithfulness. You know, thankfully, we are not left to ourselves to see what faithfulness truly looks like. And so many times we make this mistake. Right? I've made this mistake in my life. So many times we make the mistake that faithfulness is found in, in a person other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So many people have left churches today because they thought faithfulness is what the pastor is, but when the pastor stopped being faithful, they ended their Christianity. Now, I'm thankful for faithful pastors, and I pray that pastors will remain faithful. But can I say the ultimate example of faithfulness is not modeled just in the pastor. There's a better model, a greater model for us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ not only spoke about faithfulness, but he modeled faithfulness. Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul writes this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You know, we find that Jesus Christ was faithful to the very end. We find that in his human nature, in his human side, because he was 100% God and 100% man. And being as a man, he felt pain just like you and I feel pain. He felt the pain that comes when you stick a nail through your hands and through your feet. And when you're hit with a, uh, with, with a knife there on the side. He felt that pain, the pain of a whip coming on his back. And it came to the point where he, knowing what he was going to be, uh, having to do for our sins, he said to the Father in a prayer, let this, cap, uh, this cup pass over me. Then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He was a man that modeled faithfulness for you and me. He was a man that said, even to the death of the cross, I will be faithful. That's why the author of Hebrews said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord Jesus knew, and he went for, forward in faithfulness. When we look at his example you see, we see that a person who is totally yielded to the Spirit of God will begin to display the characteristic of faithfulness in his life. You know, Jesus never acted on his own. Jesus acted and did the will of the Father through the power of the Spirit. That's what he says in John 15. 
And when we do the same, when we do the will of the Father through the power of the Spirit, we can, we can show that same fruit in our life, the fruit of faithfulness. And then you see that characteristic lived out. You see it lived out in church attendance. I don't come because I have to. I come because it's faithfulness. You see that faithfulness in Bible reading. You see that faithfulness in your prayer life. You see that faithfulness in financially giving and giving that tithe and offering. You say, well, I don't make that much money. I'm not going to make it. Just give faithfully. God will provide for you. It was wonderful. Uh, this, uh, two weeks ago uh, in, a, in a discipleship, uh, with a couple here uh, from our church, we were just sharing, my wife and I, how God had provided and has provided for us every time. And that there were times where it was getting real difficult to give. Many of those times, the reason was is because I made poor choices with what God had provided for me. But I am so thankful that God's faithfulness isn't dependent on my faithfulness. He was still faithful to provide. But I learned through that that God wants me to be faithful even in that area. You'll see that manifested in itself in your service at church. You'll be faithful there. You'll be faithful in a, in a marriage to a, a spouse that uh, perhaps is different than the, uh, than the day that you married that person. I love reading stories of, of couples that really display that faithfulness of soldiers that went to fight for the freedom of this country and came back without a limb or burned and a wife that just went to their bedside and said, I'm still with you. I love you. See, that's the faithfulness that God says. That's the faithfulness I put in your life. That's the fruit of the Spirit. You'll see that faithfulness in your academic life as students you find that faithfulness at your job place, how you're treating others and how you are doing and performing your work. We find that, that, that fruit of the Spirit that begins to work on our soul and our personality begins with faithfulness. But I want you to notice this morning not only faithfulness, but also meekness. Meekness. Notice the origin of meekness, if you will, this, this morning. Meekness comes from the Greek word praetis, and it means really humility. Someone said it this way, it is an inwrought grace of the soul. And the exercises of it are first and chiefly towards God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good, and therefore without disputing or resisting, we follow him. In other words, the quality of being selfless. That's what meekness is. To be emptied of all thoughts that would be exalting to myself. And to be filled with thoughts of exalting Christ in my life. One of the fruits of the Spirit in your life when it begins to work on you, on your person, is this area of meekness. This area of emptying you of you. It is a quality only produced by the Holy Spirit. Only He can impart that selfless desire. You see, our human nature is full of selfish desire. That's what causes conflicts. That's what causes fights in our marriage. 
That's what causes conflicts at our workplace. Because usually you'll find that there's someone there that's being selfish. But it's amazing how problems can disappear if someone decides to be selfless. I like what President Ronald Reagan, one of my favorite presidents, used to always say. He said, you'd be amazed at what can be done when no one cares who gets the credit. Meekness has the idea of being selfless. Psalm 25, 9 says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. That being of, of being selfless or selfless begins to mold in a person that teachability, where someone now has the desire to learn. See, someone that has the Spirit of God working in them. Listen, they don't think they know everything about the Christian life. They don't feel like, oh, that pastor just says the same thing over and over and over again. But they look for, hey, what is the Spirit of God going to teach me today? They come with a, an expectation of learning something new. You see, part of that in a person that produces that learning, that teachability, is this area of meekness. But I want you to notice the operation of meekness, not just the origin of meekness that comes from the Holy Spirit, but the operation. It is a quality that Jesus taught that we should follow after Him in. When we are meek, then suddenly behaviors that are selfish in nature begin to disappear from our lives. Conversations about our greatness die off and those about Christ begin to rise up. I really enjoyed uh, this past weekend on, on Friday. We went to one of the members uh, of our church. We went to his house. He just had a get-together with maybe like seven or eight men from his Sunday, Sunday school class. And, and we just sort of barbecued and sat around and talked. And it was awesome. It was encouraging because, you know, I, I, we stayed till about 1130 at night at the house there. Started around 7 o'clock or so in the evening. So for about four and a half hours. And you know what was amazing? We really didn't talk about sports. We really didn't talk about our jobs. We really didn't talk about anything else other than Christ. It was awesome. We had some of us share about how we came to the saving knowledge of Christ. We had some of the men share what Christ was teaching them in their personal walk with Him. We talked about different topics of the Bible. I mean, it was just an encouraging time. But you know that that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit working in your life and teaching you meekness. I like what John chapter 3 and verse 30, as John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ start his ministry and start reaching people, John the Baptist said this, He must increase, but I must decrease. We see the meekness of John the Baptist as he says, It's not about me. It's got to be about him. We see meekness in the way we respond to what happens in our lives. You know, usually the character of a person is not seen when everything is going right. Have you noticed that? It's when things start going wrong that you really see who the, the true person is. Anyone that has coached a athletic team knows that really the, the character of your team comes out in the most adverse situations. It's not how you act when you're blowing out a team by 40 points. It's about when you're down 10 points and there's three minutes to go, what's your attitude like? 
How do you face that adversity? You see, there's where meekness comes in. How do you deal with the adversity in your marriage? In your relationships with your parents, teenagers, what is your teachability? Sometimes we get to the age of 14 and 15 and we think we know everything. And our parents just don't know all that there is to know like we do. And it's funny because from about the age of 15 to about the age of 22, you you have a little span there of seven years where you start figuring out you don't know everything. And God has a way of trying to humble you and humble me. And let me tell you, if you just walk in the Spirit, you'll see that those moments He begins to put in our person this of meekness, of being selfless. Like what it says in James 1, 21 and 22, Wherefore, he writes, Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. You know the heart that you should have when it comes down to preaching time? Meekness. Not, well, I know more than that preacher. What is that 15-year-old that's going to go and share his testimony? What's he going to teach me? I've lived longer than him. It's not that. It's the idea of, Lord, speak to me. That's how we receive the engrafted word, with meekness. That's why it's such an important trait that you ought to have. That's why it's so important to let the Spirit of God control you and me. Why? Because He'll produce faithfulness, real faithfulness, but He'll also produce meekness. And I want you to notice, lastly this morning, that last trait is temperance. Temperance. Now notice, first of all, the explanation of temperance. Temperance is a word that means self-control. One who masters his desires and passions, especially in its sensual appetites. (laughs) This speaks to the personal nature of each person. Because, you know, our appetites uh, may not be the same as another. In other words, your struggles might be different when someone else's struggles. It may be that Uh, Someone else doesn't struggle as much with their phone like you do. It might be that uh, someone else doesn't struggle as much with their temper as you do. It might be that someone doesn't uh, uh, struggle so much with their mouth as you do. But let me just say, because of that, we all need temperance in our life. Now listen, there's two sides of the coin when it comes to temperance. One side is what we call discretion. Discretion is doing the right thing at the right time. And when the Spirit of God begins to produce in us this of temperance, He begins to produce in us the ability to do the right thing at the right time. For instance, being honest at work when everyone else is being dishonest. It means, as a teenager, being at school and standing up for what is right, though maybe everybody else in that locker room doesn't, or everyone in that classroom does not. You see, having temperance or self-control is saying, I'm not just going to go wild because I can, or because nobody will know if I do. No. 
part of temperance is doing the right thing at the right time. But the other side of that coin is discipline. If you're going to have self-control in your life, you're going to have to have discipline. This is doing the right thing consistently, even when it isn't convenient or comfortable. Being consistent in it. You know, we've all had moments where we've done the right thing at least one time and done it at the right time. But temperance isn't only doing it once, but it's being consistent in it. It's, it's avoiding those temptations that you need to avoid. It's avoiding those friends that you know you should not be around. That's what temperance is. It's having discretion and discipline that produces self-control in your life. Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. In other words, you're defenseless. But having self-control allows you to live a life in the power of the Spirit. I want you to notice the application of temperance. You see, when we live in a world that is lacking temperance, in so many areas, it's hard. Have you noticed that there's a lot of people that lacking temperance? If you just watched the news the last two weeks, you would have seen a lot of people. And the media makes it seem like it's millions when it's probably just a few thousand. But they totally lacked temperance. <laughs> no self-control whatsoever. That's why they'll post things on Twitter that you go, what in the world? They'll go and march down the street saying things and worrying things that you just say, who in their right mind would do that? The problem is, is that our world lacks this temperance. The world says, if your heart says to do it, do it. Act upon your feelings and your emotions. And God says, that's not the way to work. God says we ought to have temperance in our life, having that self-control. Whether that be in the area of what I do with my com uh, computer or my phone or what I do in my marriage or what I do with my children. You see, if we lack temperance, if there is no temperance in our minds, soon we'll begin to act out what we should never have been thinking about in the first place. Philippians 4.8, Paul writes to the Christians at Philippi, and he says, these are the things you ought to think on, things that are pure and good and lovely. Why? Because, listen, every action starts with a thought. And you begin to dwell on the wrong kinds of thoughts, it won't be long till you're doing the wrong kinds of things. Evil communications corrupt good manners. In other words, you could say it this way, Wrong relationships will corrupt you. That's why it's so important to choose. Hey, who are my close friends? Who are the ones that truly care for me, for my family, for my well-being? Who are those that have that temperance that would help me and teach me how I might have that same self-control in my life? You say temperance ought to be something not that we just talk about and point out, but something that we live out. You might be here this morning and say, well, well how do I know? How do I, how do I see this temperance? How do I exercise temperance in my life? Let me give you just a few quick thoughts. 
there in your notes. Number one, admit your weakness. Be a person that doesn't believe that everything is your strength. You ever met someone like that? They never can grow. Why? They don't admit, admit their weakness. Number two, forget your past. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before I press towards the mark of the high calling of Christ. Forget your past. It's not something you need to dwell on. Don't look at the failures. Help, help, ask God to help you look at the victories coming up. To look back at what God has done for you and through you and with you. If you're going to exercise temperance, you need to admit your weakness, forget your past. Number three, believe that God can bring change. You know, God can change you. You don't have to stay the way you are. You don't have to say, as so many people do when they excuse their lack of self-control, well, that's just the way I am. You ever heard someone that like that? You say, man, you, you really have trouble with your temper. Well, that's just the way I am. I just don't like when people disappoint me. I just don't like when people talk to me that way. I just don't like when things like this happen to, my, to me in my life. God says, listen, this is not a product of your environment. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit is not working in your life because you're not allowing them to. When you exercise temperance, you'll believe that God can bring change into your life. Number four, become accountable with others. Listen, you ought not to fear your Sunday school teacher. You're not to fear your pastor. You're not to be in fear of your parents. They're people to whom you can be accountable to. Welcome that accountability. Hey, be thankful that there's a friend that you have in your life that says, hey, how are you doing in your Bible reading? How are you doing in your prayer life? That asks you about how your marriage is going. Thank God for friends like that. Then number five, avoid temptation. Don't go around places you know you ought not to be. Don't get around people you ought not to be around. Get around those that are going to encourage you and edify you, that are going to give you what the Word of God says. Avoid that wrong temptation. And then number six, depend on God's power. Depend on God's power. This of the fruit of the Spirit isn't about what I can do, but what He can do in me. This morning, we, we see that the Spirit's work in our life is something that affects spirit, body, and soul. But I wonder, are you allowing the Spirit of God to work in your life today? Can I ask, is the Spirit of God producing in you that personal fruit that we've talked about today? Can I encourage you to just make a decision today? I want to yield to the Spirit of God. I don't want to fight it. I don't want to go against it. I just want to yield to Him in my life so that He might produce in me the faithfulness that I ought to have, the meekness I ought to live with, and the temperance that I ought to have in my life. Cyrus uh, Nussbaum wrote a song in 
1898 that was, that was written in a difficult experience of his life. It was his first year of pastoring, and, and uh, he had been working in the state of Kansas. It was, a, it was a small sort of rural community that he was there. It was one of the poorest circuits uh, as a Methodist preacher that they had sent him to. And, and he had been there uh, serving in this poor district. And, and at the end of the year, he was hoping that he was going to be appointed and given another church somewhere else. Well, he went to a conference where they appoint that and, and found that he hadn't been chosen to go anywhere else except to go back to where he was. In fact, he, he described it as going back to that hard scrabble circuit, that place of hard people. And when he returned home, he was at first very unhappy and even felt rebellious. But about midnight, the Spirit of God got a hold of him, and he knelt in prayer that night and told the Lord that he would be willing to do whatever he led him to do. He'd be willing to go wherever he would have him to go or stay wherever he needed him to stay. But he was going to yield totally to the Spirit of God. A little while after, he wrote these words down for the song. And these are the words. He wrote, Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk with Him within the narrow road? Would you have Him bear your burden, carry all your load? Let Him have His way with thee. Would you have Him make you free and follow at His call? Would you know the peace that comes by giving all? Would you have Him save you so that you can never fall? And let him have his way with thee. Would you in his kingdom find a place of constant rest? Would you prove him true each providential test? Would you in his service labor always at your best? Then let him have his way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee. The fruit of the Spirit can produce faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. But will you allow him to work in your life today? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you do in our lives. Father, it's amazing the life that we can experience and live if we simply allow you to have your way with us. I pray that we would not, this morning, be resistant to the call of your Spirit on our life and on our heart. Oh, but I pray that this morning we would think about what your Spirit produces in us. Oh, Father, may we desire that in our life. May that be what we want more than anything today, more than more than this world could offer, may we desire that which only your Spirit can give. Father, I pray you work even in our hearts this morning. As the pianist plays just one stanza of a song, perhaps you're saying, Pastor, you know, that's, that's something that I needed today. I really, I, I really just need the Spirit of God to to work in me so that I might be more faithful and meek and temperate. 
You're saying, Pastor, would you just pray for me that the Holy Spirit could produce that in my life? If that's your decision, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. God bless you. I see those hands. God bless you. I see those hands. Amen. Amen. Along with that, I want to just give one more invitation, and that is perhaps you're here this morning, and you've never taken that first step to becoming a Christian. That decision of accepting Christ as your Savior. Perhaps today is the day that you say, I want to make that decision. I want to make Christ my Savior. I want the Spirit of God indwelling in me and producing what we talked about this morning. Because you cannot produce it apart from the Spirit of God. You say, I want to make that decision today. Is there anyone like that? I can pray for you. I want someone to just show you how you can know that Jesus is your Savior. Is there anyone like that? Father, this morning, I simply saw hands, but you saw the hearts of those that raised their hand. I pray that your spirit would work in their lives, work in my life. Father, may we, may we allow your spirit to work in us so that we might be living fully, spirit, body, and soul by the power of your spirit. And we have love, joy, and peace, and long-suffering, and gentleness, and goodness, and faith, and meekness, and temperance. Oh, may, be that, may that be the life that others describe of us. Not from what we have done, but because of what you have done. Oh, Father, I pray you'd work now. Help us throughout this week to live in the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 As we stand to our feet.